is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Returning to the podcast for episode 79 is Jungian analyst, author, and teacher, Dr. James Hollis in Washington, D.C. He holds a doctorate in literature from Drew University and taught humanities and the philosophic traditions of cultures for 26 years before training as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich, Switzerland. Dr. Hollis is the co-founder and first director of training of the Philadelphia Jung Institute and served for many years as executive director of the C.G. Jung Educational Center in Houston, Texas. In 2014, he relocated to D.C. to become the executive director of the Jung Society of Washington and now sits on their board of directors. He is also a senior training analyst for the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and is Vice President Emeritus of the Philemon Foundation, a group of scholars, board members, and donors who share the mandate to prepare the unpublished works of C.G. Jung. Dr. Hollis is the author of 17 books and has joined us on four previous episodes. Episode 25 on his book, Why Good People Do Bad Things, Understanding Our Darker Selves, Episode 27 on The Eden Project, In Search of the Magical Other, Episode 32 on Living an Examined Life, Wisdom for the Second Half of the Journey, and Episode 65 on Living Between Worlds, Finding Personal Resilience in Changing Times. He returns today to discuss his new book, Prisms, Reflections on This Journey We Call Life, published this week by Chiron. Please visit the website speakingofjung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com, where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Friday, February 5th, 2021, through the magic of Zoom. Hi, Dr. Hollis. Good morning, Laura. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Well, it's my honor, my privilege to welcome you for a fifth episode of Speaking of Jung. So a new book, I love it, a new book, let's look at it from the outside in. The cover is a painting titled Hermes Has Arrived. Mm -hmm. And in the preface, you and throughout the book, actually, you mention the daemon many times. Mm -hmm. It's a word we hear frequently. Uh, I don't think it's very well understood. Uh, But I love your explanation. In the preface to the book, You explain what the daemon is, and you say it's an autonomous hermetic link between higher and lower powers. And Hermes was the messenger of the gods. His Latin form became Mercury. So would you tell us a little bit about what that means to you? Certainly. Uh, First of all, this uh, cover, which I find striking myself, is a painting by my wife. So I pleased that uh, I could share this painting, which is sitting in the other room here. We're sequestered like everybody else. And this uh, allows some other folks to see uh, her talent as well. So, uh, yes, I I usually pronounce it the daimon. It doesn't matter that much. But the the daimon is a Greek concept that uh, has to do with what we might call inspiration. Just imagine that word, inspiration, something breathing within you is what it means, literally. Spire is is our word for spirit, you know. So uh, when Plato wrote, he said, it's not me writing, it's my daimon speaking through me. Um, So when, when I find myself called to write, 
it's often at times when my ego doesn't want to write. I work all day as a Jungian uh, analyst, and I'm seeing clients all day. And usually when I write is in the evenings. And so I'm not necessarily <laughs> full of energy and enthusiasm, but the daimon sort of taps on the door and says, look, uh, we're not letting you off here. So I, I find the act of writing a kind of alchemical process, meaning it's a mystery to me. I have an idea about something that wants to take form. I, I start, in effect, imaging it in my mind, and, and then somehow the fingers start moving. And I must say, as much as I resisted the computer many decades ago, mm -hmm. there's a certain fluidity of the computer that one didn't have with a pencil or with the old typewriter. So I find it easy to sort of, um, sort of stay with what almost, say, a flow of the unconscious. And then, of course, part of the aesthetic delight is to say, well, how does that sentence fall into place or what's the right word here? And what I've learned is, is don't bother to edit along the way. That, that critical mind can come in later. It's more important to be present to that energy, which is wishing to uh, express itself through us. So the, the daimon is really that which um, we are to embody in the world. It's, it's a manifestation of our service to the world, really, our purposefulness in the world. We all have ego obligations like get up, uh, brush your teeth, get to work, take care of the baby, et cetera, et cetera, all appropriate and legitimate. But, but there's another energy within us that is seeking its expression through us. And I don't presume to know very much about that. I consider it a mystery. So when the mystery strikes, I've, I've learned it's better not to resist. Mm -hmm. You wrote your dissertation on the work of the poet W.B. Yeats, and then you wrote your first book, I think shortly after, on the British playwright Harold Pinter. But then mm -hmm. you say you stopped writing for decades. Mm -hmm. Then you you wrote, you started writing, and you wrote 17 books, and you call this one, this new book, Prisms, Late Essays. And mm. the book consists of 11 new essays. You also point out that you are now 80 years old, and I think you'll be 81 this year, mm -hmm. and you've been dealing with some, some illness. Mm -hmm. But yes. your plan, you say this in the preface, which I love, your plan is to keep as active and grow as much as you can under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll just to back up to the sentences you, you, were, you were quoting there. Um, I had to demonstrate as an academic, I could do research and, and write some, 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 some original contribution to learning. I did that, but I think the combination of real life issues, such as raising a family and ultimately retraining in Zurich and so forth, uh, certainly took a lot of the external energy away, but intrapsychically, there was a part of me rebelling that uh, wanted to uh, not have to serve the writing for the sake of producing a better office or a slight raise in salary. So it's very interesting that when my last child came through town, having finished her college and drove off several states away to start her life, I felt a very strong and very predictable sort of reactive depressive mood takeover. You know, it's the, it's the empty nest syndrome, which is so familiar. And I remember saying to myself, while she's driving across the U S um, what would you say to someone else who brought this to you? And I would say, look, 
you had a job. Your job was well done. Look at her. She's free and independent. She's moving towards her life. Yes, you'll miss her, but you'll see her again. And she's doing what she's supposed to be doing with your life. Now, that energy that was invested there has come back to you. What are you going to do with that? And at that point, I literally sat down while she's driving and started writing the book Middle Passage. Mm. And since that time, they've been flowing out. And they're not even my choice. It's almost as if all of that stuff was uh, sort of uh, pooled up inside. Mm -hmm. Plus, of course, you know, a couple decades of um, of psychological practice in which, um, you know, I was learning things and gaining things and getting uh, some perspectives on things and puzzling over things. So the middle passage, for example, rose out of my recognition that all of the different people coming to present whatever their issues were, having different biographies and and different outer circumstances, had one thing in common, and that was their outer understanding of self and world. Their roadmap, as it were, was no longer applicable to the territory in which they found themselves. And so I thought, well, you know, that means something's played out. That's Something's died and something perhaps never was adequate, but it's certainly not working now. And the obvious struck my mind, and that was, that's what a passage is. Something has to die before something new can emerge in a person's developmental agendas. And we're here in this in-between time. Mm -hmm. And this in-between time is is very difficult, where we may not know who we are. We don't know what's important in our lives. Uh, We may find the energy that we've invested in a relationship or even a career, you know, is simply not there anymore. And so the purpose of therapy sometimes is to hold the fragments together, keep functioning in the world while that uh, sort of developmental process uh, plays out within a person. Because there's always, always something wanting to grow and develop in us. The human psyche has two goals as I see it. One is our growth and development. And secondly is our healing. So we're always trying to heal something within ourselves. And the growth and development is something we want to serve and facilitate rather than be resisting. So uh, that's how that book happened. And then others just started happening. I remember another of the early uh, books called The Swamplands of the Soul, which was about such lovely things as depression, loss, betrayal, and so forth. Uh, It literally started writing in the unconscious. I got up about four in the morning, still in New Jersey at that time. And the the sentences were rolling out. And I just ran out to my office and started typing. So that's what I mean by the diamond. You know, there's there's something in there that knows us better than, than we. But also, and this is something I wouldn't have said 30 years ago. There's something in us that wants to use us. And I mean that in a constructive way. I think we are somehow the vehicles of the greater forces of life. We have jobs, we have relationships, all of which have legitimate claim upon us. But there's also something that's a claim upon the soul. And and sadly, the conditions of life for so many people are such that they're not even able to to pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. But if one is able to, then something terrible happens in their soul, you see. That's a deformation of their soul. And a lot of that occurs, but when we can, we're, we're here to serve what wants to enter the world through us. And, and I've just felt as if I were a vehicle for the expression of whatever those books were exploring. Now, you say something that wants to, to enter the world through us. Is that something that 
we can sit down and figure out ourselves on the conscious level, the ego level, or is that something in the unconscious that's going to take a lot of work to get to? So I I guess what I'm trying to say is, is it, do we, because I could just hear the listeners thinking, oh, I, well, I know. And I'm thinking, no, you probably don't know. Well, it's interesting. I, I can't fully answer your question. It's a very good question. It's probably a little both. Uh, many times when I talk with people, for example, depressed people, mm-hmm. we're sitting there glumly looking at the floor and, and they start talking. They just happen to sort of bump into something that really is important for them. And their whole mood and affect and their eye lifts and their eyes start shining. And I say, look, look, you know, you're not depressed. Why? Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm supposed to be depressed here. And I said, it's because there's something there that was congruent within you for a moment. There's something in you that you touched upon that was wanting that expression through you. And, and what we call our neuroses are typically where those energies or pur- purposeful uh, uh, considerations are split off or repressed. So, but many times um, people have to really let this thing brew and, and see what wants to come up. The key is, to, to be able to pay attention. I mean, that's what the word therapy means, to listen or attend. So you, you literally listen or attend to your own psyche. And remember, psyche is the Greek word for soul. So psychotherapy means simply really listening and paying attention to your own soul. And when you do, there's, there's always something seeking expression. Now, it doesn't have to be anything grandiose. It may be simply to to appreciate nature more it may be to play more music it may be to work with one's hands uh but i think there's something in all of us you see that that's why my psyche i think autonomously revolted against being in servitude to the expectation of academic publishing Mm -hmm. i proved i could do scholarship now so what I, i there was no feeling for that i enjoyed reading yates certainly and the subject matter was really sort of the tension of opposites that Yeats's life and work embodied. But beyond that, to produce publications for the sake of publications is, is somehow like, you know, working on an assembly line. And, uh, and yet at the same time, I hadn't yet discovered what my subject was. And I'm still working on what my subject is. You know, the subjects come to me. I don't invent them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no question. But what if I'm able to live longer, um, I'm, you know, going to have something else emerge. I'm just not going to sit here and predict what it is. So as you, as you mentioned, I, I, in the last year and a half, I've been dealing with at least two cancers with a lot of intensive treatment. And at the same time, I've been working full time. And this book happened uh, during that time as well. And so I, as far as I, I'm concerned, um, you know, it was business as usual. But uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes. Getting into the book, chapter one, you write about archetypal presences. And I was wondering if you would indulge us for a few minutes here. The word archetype and the concept of the archetype has been a big topic on this podcast for a while because there seems to be some confusion Uh, on social media and my interactions with the listeners as to what the word archetype means. Mm -hmm. And I was actually speaking with uh, my last guest who 
writes books about owls and synchronicities. And he mentioned the owl archetype. And I thought, I don't think the owl's an archetype. I think the owl might be a symbol. So mm-hmm. what what is Jung's concept of the archetype and why are why are archetypes important? Well, first of all, Jung's topography of the human psyche had three layers. The top layer, the world that we so often associate with who we are, is really the smallest layer. That's the world of consciousness. It's I often think of it as a small disk floating on a large iridescent ocean, easily overwhelmed. Now, beneath that is the layer of the personal unconscious, which is all that's ever happened to you or to me since the day of our birth. So when, when you dream of your grandmother, let's say, and I dream of my grandmother, it will have the flavor of our individual experiences of our grandmothers. The deeper level is the sort of archetypal field. Now, the word archetype, uh, which really etymologically means an original or ancient or archaic pattern, I think needs to be understood as a verb, not as a noun. Because if we're a noun, then it shows up in our MRIs or our CAT scans. It's really a formative set of energies within us. Now, to to be very uh, elementary for a moment, when the geese head south in the northern hemisphere in the fall and, and return in the north, it's not that they're checking their calendar and saying, oh, it's time for us to look for a, you know, a condo in Florida. Mm-hmm. It's because some deep force that has to do with their adaptation to nature moves them. We call it instinct. So patterns are instinctual, formative energies within us. So it's better to say we are archetyping or all, all the time. It's not good English, but it's certainly okay. more descriptive. And, and so archetypes are the formative patterns in our lives. And it has to do with en- elemental forces that shape our consciousness, human culture, and, and so forth. So we're driven by archetypal energies, whether we know it or not, that are, that are timeless. So for that reason, we can have dreams, let's say, right now in 2021, that have virtually or identical themes and motifs from someone, say, thousands of years ago. We have plenty of evidence of that, uh, plenty of evidence. And, and yet the, the specific imagery that that person's unconscious used would have come out of his or her time or place. So we, we, we wear the clothing, so to speak, or garb of our time and place so that this these formative energies pass through the personal unconscious, take on the coloration, let's say, of the 21st century, but, but serve a timeless, um, timeless energy. You know, um, I, there's a sentence in this, uh, parag- this uh, paragraph you just mentioned. Um, Is it not that we are carried by large archetypal winds across the turning pages of ragged time? Because in, in some way, what moves through us is timeless, um, occupying for the short duration we call our life, this particular incarnation. As Jung pointed out once, we life is a short pause between two great mysteries, very short pause. Mm-hmm. And the mysteries, by definition, remain the mysteries. Any ideas we have about it or our ideas may have no application whatsoever to the re- whatever the realities are, but a short pause between two great mysteries. And so what is it that 
brings us into this life, carries us through our developmental stages, um, and, and informs our relationships and, uh, and our sort of meaning experiences or loss of meanings. And, and what is it that takes us out of this life, too? I mean, we don't know. Those are mysteries. So we swim in mystery, and it's understandable the ego wants to know about all that. That's part of its responsibility, I suppose. And it's understandable that it gets anxious when it realizes it's not the boss, it's not in charge. But uh, ultimately, we have to see that there was an old Chippewa prayer that said very simply, I am so caught up in my little worries, and all the while, great winds blow across the skies. And I thought when I first read that, and I think it was from the 19th century, I thought there is someone from a wholly different culture and a worldview yeah. having the same thought. You know, we, we swim in mystery. It courses through us. We're here a short time. And, and we're here, you know, not to build up our, our bank accounts or our resumes. We're, we're here in some way to embody whatever life is asking of us. Now, I wouldn't have thought that as a young person. As a young person, like anyone else, I would say, well, I'm here to build my career and create relationships and be a citizen, all, all of which is true and useful and constructive. But after that, then you'd say, and, and why is it, again, that I'm here? What is my life really about? What is really um, that to which I am called? Because you put it this way. He said, in almost all of his clients, he had to ask the question, what task, what summons is this person's neurosis helping him or her avoid? Another way of putting that bluntly is where do, where do I need to grow up? Where do I step into a larger expression of, of whatever is wanting to be embodied through me? And, uh, you know, we, we all have our adaptations because life demands that, particularly when we're tiny and dependent and vulnerable children. But I think the single most important thing I learned in Zurich in, in six years of study and analysis was that uh, our chief problem becomes our adaptations. The things that were necessary to get us through the first stages of life when we were utterly at the mercy of the world around us later get locked in as reflexive responses to life. And, and therefore, you have to look at where are the places where I'm avoidant? Where are the places where I am complicit? Um, where are the places where I'm codependent and so forth? And you realize those defenses, however necessary they once were, now keep you from you. And that's why Jung said so memorably once, um, we all walk in shoes too small for us. The, the shoes being, uh, you know, our adaptive patterns, protective patterns. In the next chapter, which is titled Reframing Our Sense of Self and World in Plague Times, you do look at the current situation we're in in this pandemic and uh -huh. what would you like to tell the listeners about your thoughts about our current time well it has caused more than one person to have a meeting with themselves i think it, it has you know our normal life a series of legitimate obligations to the outer world to family to children to friends to um, work, etc. in many cases has been interrupted in significant ways. It's almost like those were plug-ins. So many people didn't realize how much I was depending on my work to carry 
who I was and give me my daily marching and say, oh, it's Monday, it's time to go to work, you know, that kind of thing. That's changed. It's, it's almost like those plugins are pulled out at the end of those dangling cords is, is what? Anxiety? And, and for some people, it's been an extraordinary opportunity to go within and say, well, who am I apart from my roles? And, and what are the other pieces that uh, are wishing to be honored within my own life? And I know many people have taken up new hobbies and new interests and developed new resources. Pascal said in the 17th century, he said, our biggest problem, and this is in the 17th century, long before for the internet and home shopping network, you know, um, he said, humankind's chief problem is its inability to be with itself in its own private chamber. Mm-hmm. That, that's still the case. So popular culture which we can plug into 24-7, has as its chief uh, treatment plan for whatever ails us is distraction. You know, it's, it's numbing and distracting. So, and other people have suffered significant regressions, uh, everything from violence to increased self-medication and, and, and so forth. So what it has done is obliged people to begin reframing their sense of who I am Apart from my very legitimate relationships, let's say to to family, to loved ones, to uh, work assignments, and and so forth, and I think a lot of people are going to come out of this with a greater sense of their own uh, selfhood, if you will, and a greater sense of of not being defined by the continuing responses to the world around us. Um, Kierkegaard talked about in the 19th century a person who was shocked to realize that he was reading his own name in the um, obituary column of the Copenhagen, Copenhagen Tagblatt, whatever the newspaper's name. And he didn't realize he died because he didn't realize he was here. You know, it's possible to spend all of our journey here simply in conditioned responses. And then you have to stop and say, so, okay, <laughs> who am I apart from that? You know, I experienced a little bit of that with the empty nest syndrome. You know, how much of my life had been spent working as a kind of working parent, you know, which was a a wonderful role and a rich role, but then it was over. Okay, now that energy has come back to you. What are you going to do with it? Or retirement, where where people have been downsized or or laid off. And, you know, quite apart from the worries for, for income and so forth, which are very real. Uh, one has to say, but but then who am I in relationship to my own soul? And what is it that my my soul is asking me asking of me during the, during this time? So it's it's obliged for for everybody to some degree a reframing of this one sense of who I am in relationship to myself, rather than all of the things I have to report to in the world out there. In the next chapter, you look at the profile of the wounded healer. And I thought it was very interesting. You mentioned that um, when you were in Zurich uh, training at the Jung Institute, that it was rumored that the question, why do you want to become a Jungian analyst, should never be answered by, because I want to help people. Mm -hmm. Would you explain why you said that? Well, that question was never directly asked by to anybody I know. (laughs) It was part of the rumor of those of us who studying there that uh, that's the worst answer you can give because that would be considered a, a form of self-inflation 
you're not here to fix anybody. You're, you're here trying to fix yourself. And that's what brought you here. And you better recognize that first. That's why the, the central focus of all of our training was less uh, academic classes, which we had in exams and a thesis to write and all that sort of thing. It was more the personal analysis. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think it, the descent into that process maybe into a different level of dialogue with the unconscious was uh, increased, exacerbated maybe by the fact that it was in a foreign country and foreign language and so forth. So for that reason, uh, one was thrown much more back upon one's own resources and uh, learning to live in a foreign country and navigate there, uh, I think was part of the whole analytic process, interestingly enough, because one had to find one's own resilience, one's resourcefulness, a certain courage and a certain uh, persistence. And uh, so the the old saying, physician heal thyself, is certainly true because that chapter is saying that most people, not everyone in the helping professions, we include clergy and physicians, social workers, nurses, et cetera, and therapists, um, often are the very sensitive child in their own family of origin. So they get especially attuned to uh, the disturbances in the field of the family energies. And therefore they often feel obliged, partly out of self-interest, but partly out of, of caring um, to do, what, do, what can I do to bring about some homeostasis in this troubled family? I'm, I'm hoping that I can do that in such a way that then the family will be there to meet my needs too. That's, that's what the child is thinking, albeit unconsciously. So that that gets very much internalized and often becomes a sort of guiding motive force for the person later. And you don't have to be a professional therapist to see this at work within you because many times people who've come from troubled family backgrounds will be the ones who are always trying to sort of, if you will, fix people around them. Um, They can be an annoyance or they can be helpful but they're, they're serving an old agenda. So th- that chapter is really about looking at our history and asking the question, what has our history made us do or what is our history keeping us from doing? And that's a question anybody can ask, no matter what your, your day, day job may be. Mm-hmm. And if it seems like I'm jumping around, I just want to cover the main theme in each of the chapters of the sure. book. Uh, as I said, there are 11. And the next chapter, you address the topic of the psychology of comedy. Mm -hmm. You talk about the fool and the trickster and the shadow. So the, the subtitle of this chapter is, is the joke on us? Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, I've, I've always loved humor. I've burdened my children and my wife with jokes from, from the first time they knew me. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid I'm not capable of change in that area. Um, Jokes are our way of bearing the human condition that there's a reason why the famous masks of the theater of comedy and tragedy are are really the flip version of each other because you know tragedy deals with the suffering of life and through uh through that suffering comes to some kind of resolution and restoration of right relationship to the mysteries and comedy does as well, but the, it does it through the expression of emotion that we call laughter. So if you actually take most jokes seriously, they're, they're horrible. I mean, if you, if you realize this is the suffering of the human condition, but we laugh at it. 
Um, I, I, you know, to tell you, to give you an example, one of those dumb jokes, which I happen to love, uh, two cannibals are, are eating a clown. And one says after a while, um, say, you taste something funny here? Well, that's a pretty horrific image when you stop and think about right, it. Right, right, right. But then you see how the mind moves through metaphor to say, oh, clown, funny, taste some, oh, I get it, mm-hmm. you see. Yeah. And and what is in some way horrifying is expressed through through laughter. And uh, I give many examples of uh, jokes in there. I, I hope people actually laugh at some of these jokes. And uh, the purpose of the jokes is, is to show seven different ways in which uh, humor helps us understand and mediate our world and frankly not go under in the face of it. Yeah, right, right. The next chapter is on desire, mm-hmm. and you talk about sex and lust and appetite. Mm-hmm. Well, I've never written about that per se, but mm-hmm. but you know, desire is the energy of life, and it's of great interest to me to realize that our word desire originally was a nautical term, not a naughty term, a nautical term. Um, it had of the stars. It was it was meant to represent the need of the mariner to be able to find a star. Uh, because if you don't find a star to help guide you across the wine dark sea, you're, you're lost at sea. So th- this talks a little bit about disorders of desire. It desires the life force. And there are various things that enter in, extrusions from the outer world or intrusions, I should say, and also intrapsychic conflicts that, that block desire. And I talk about some of the clients I've had there who have been suffering disorders of desire and to, to recognize that in a sense, this is a violation of the soul as well. We are not just separate bodies from, from spirit and, and soul, but we are all one organism. And so, um, you know, d- desire is something that is always present. But the question is, if it's not expressing itself, where is it pathologizing? Or what, it, what heavy weight is sitting upon it? And, and the redemption of desire is really to return to the life force, once again, that's ex- seeking expression through us. Mm-hmm. So that's what that chapter addresses. Chapter six is titled, All is Fire, the Imagination as Aperture into Psyche. Yes. And throughout this book, I notice that you point out, which something that I know Jung said this, but I first heard it from you, that the problem with the unconscious is that it's unconscious. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that in several times throughout this book, and it's so important. You also mention Jung's book, Symbols of Transformation, which is volume five in his collected works. And you say that almost nobody reads it today except for your students. Mm-hmm. So what is it about that book that you want us to get? Well, first of all, Jung wrote that book in 1911. And in it, he begins to describe the, the three layers of uh, our functioning, as we mentioned, the, the level of consciousness, the personal unconscious, and the collective unconscious. And it was that third that uh, actually split him off from Freud in 1912 when the book was published. And in it, he shows the autonomy of the psyche expressing its developmental agendas through or through symbols. And see, the problem with um, psychology is it 
much of the time it's trying to focus on, on what we can observe, our behaviors and our cognitive processes. And that's important. But the real question is what is producing those behaviors? What's happening in the unconscious and how do we track that? So this is, this is a very difficult work to try to discern the movement of the invisible fields of energy through the, the, the visible forms of our lives. And so uh, this, this particular essay is about the nature of the creative process and how some, uh, something in us begins to form. And we can't know it because it's unconscious. Okay. But then it presents itself to us as some kind of image. That's how I was describing the creative process before. I don't sit down to write a book. I, I, it's like something in me starts crowding me from within. And I have to approach it and, and say in so many words, you know, what are you? <laughs> what, are you what are you about? And as yeah. those images begin to emerge, then I begin to respond from my consciousness. And that's the kind of dialogue that deepens our relationship to ourselves. Now, this is not about... Um, self-indulgence or, or withdrawing from the world because it's, it's the quality of that kind of dialogue that literally translates into the quality of our outer relationships with other people. So, you know, the work we do on ourselves is ultimately a social service because that's the person we're bringing to our children, to our partners, to, to our clients and, and to our friends and so forth. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you something and I might edit this part out it kept coming up as you were talking about your writing process that you don't sit down to write a book. And I actually heard a songwriter say something similar. She said, I, I don't sit down to write. How could anybody say, well, I'm going to have a writing session. We're going to sit and write. She waits for it to come through her. But there is something that is, or at least it was when when I was trying to do it, uh, this writing process where you sit down and you force yourself to write. And I know so many writers that have to push themselves and, and yeah, I'm going to use that word again, force themselves to sit uh -huh. and write. And it just seems like such a painful process for them. And mm -hmm. over the years, I thought, well, then maybe writing's not for you. If you have to sit down every day at a certain time, and mm -hmm. th there's somebody I know, she she calls it bum glue, where she has to glue her bum to the chair to, mm -hmm. to, to prevent herself from getting up, you know, to just sit there and force herself to write. Then I'm thinking, then maybe writing's not for you. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question because the truth is inspiration and any of the arts is truly a mystery. But I think it's a little both. Um, I have to glue my bum down at the end of a long workday if anything's going to happen. The point is there are things wanting to happen, you see. There, there's a difference there. It requires a, a discipline. It uh, doesn't mean that it's easy. Uh, the sports writer Red Smith said once, writing is easy. You just sit down and, and open a vein, you know. And yeah. uh, Thomas Mann said, writing is an act that is most difficult for those who are writers. So you have to be willing to, to sort of, it's like birthing a child, you know. It hurts, and yet yet the product is, is worth it. So I think it's it's about responding. I mean, you can sit down and write non, non you know, um, non non-fiction works 
because you're you're bringing research together and that sort of thing. A lot of books occur that way in doctoral theses and so forth, and, and appropriately so. Um, but I'm talking about another kind of interaction with what I think is essentially mysterious, that which is ex- seeking expression through you. So it, it's really a little both. It, it's about attending what starts to nudge you from within, but then also bringing the discipline to it that sort of consistently shows up and says, all right, uh, let's, let's go with this. And I find when I do attend that process, something starts happening. I, I won't say my ego isn't responding to it and playing a role. I simply will say it's responding to some other kind of energy. And that's what we've called the diamond. Mm-hmm. In chapter seven, you talk about Narcissus and the fading image in a pool too deep. Mm-hmm. And again, you mention Jung's definition of neurosis. And something mm-hmm. I thought was interesting is that the first modern to really explore narcissism was Dostoevsky in Notes from Underground. Mm-hmm. And you also talk a little bit about the narcissistic personality disorder. Well, actually, that, that essay was written in response to a request to reflect on a certain politician's uh, narcissistic tendencies. Yes. And um, so I don't mention the politician, but I talk about narcissism in general. And uh, remember, Narcissus is the Greek youth who ostensibly fell in love with his own image in the pool. But, but in true narcissism is the reverse of that. The narcissist looks in the mirror and no one stares back. That's why a narcissist has to use other people a narcissist has to um, control uh, a partner or children or employees in service to their own shaky sense of self. So we all have narcissistic wounds where we are somewhere dumping our emotional needs and our insecurities on people around us. But a true narcissistic personality disorder is, is a person who truly is empty inside but spends their life in uh, overcompensation through grandiosity power complexes, and and so forth. And so, you know, Narcissus is, in a sense, the image with how, what kind of self-image do we have? And what does it say to us? And what is, again, what does it make us do? Or what does it keep us from doing? So I think in that chapter, everybody will find some familiar things. Mm -hmm. And I was wanting to talk about the extreme disorder of the narcissistic personality disorder. Who, who, you know, is constantly in a power complex over other people versus the narcissistic ones we all have to our self-esteem, our self-worth, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. I have a client who's in training right now, and he said, you know, when I started working with people, I'm just shocked to realize no one thinks very well of themselves. And I said, that's true. And, and that's part of what uh, happens in our formative stages. And then the question is, how, how do you get a person to work with that. So uh, narcissistic wounding is common to all of us. What do we do with that? You say that how often we hear people say, I want to know myself, but do we really, can we bear it? That's true. Right. And I think one of the, and I mentioned this a lot on this podcast, I know one of the most helpful things that came out of my time and analysis is accepting my humanness. And it's something I still struggle with and think about Uh every day. But allowing myself to be human, to be flawed, was just so helpful to me. 
Sure, sure. No, I think that's the single biggest struggle for me is uh, the gap between what I know, believe, and desire for of myself and what I'm capable of embodying in the world. There's always a, a gap there. And I, I can be very judgmental about myself. And so that self-acceptance has been a long-term issue. And I'm still working on it, you know. But at least, I, as you said, you, you, you know it's an, an issue. So, um, right. Right. you know, the, 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 the task of the narcissist is, summons us to a heroic um, moment where we have to ask the question. And I talk at greater length about this in the book on relationship called The Eden Project. What am I asking of the other? that I need to ask of myself. Yeah. I call it heroic because that lifts it off of the other person. In other words, I'm counting on my children to make me feel good about me. You know, what I'm just doing, I say I love them, but I'm distorting their journey. Mm. You know, I'm diverting a lot of their energies to take care of old dad. So, you know, I don't want to do that if I make it conscious. Um, what am I asking of the other that I need to address myself? And that's the only way through that narcissism. Yeah. Every time I get into a spat or an argument with my partner, I hear your voice and I think of that. What am I asking of this person that I really should be asking of myself? So I want to thank you again for that. Um, the next let me just, let me yeah. just say it for a I hear my own voice at times saying that. <laughs> so, welcome to the club. I love it. That's great. <laughs> Uh, the next chapter, chapter eight, is actually the longest chapter in the book. It's 26 pages, and it is a Jungian perspective on evil. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, one of the couple of things I pulled out of this chapter is you say all of us suffer from PTSD, for life is traumatic, existentially overwhelming, flooding us with a magnitude of experiences too large to wholly assimilate. Well, again, that was an essay written in response to a, a, a book that was being put together by the American Psychological Association called Humanity's Dark Side. It's a, a book well worth reading. And they were looking at the issue, the problem of evil. How do you, from a therapeutic standpoint, how do you look at evil? And, you know, can we say that a person uh, has issues loaded up in their uh, biology or issues loaded up in their nurtured environment that, quote, made them the way they were. Um, does that excuse evil? Uh, and how do you define evil? You know, so much of evil is contextual to that culture and, and, and so forth. So it was certainly an opportunity to explore Jung's concept of the shadow, that which we uh, all carry, the parts within us that we don't wish to own, but are part of our human nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, again, ultimately, it raises the question, what is evil? What is our accountability before it? And um, to, to try to differentiate uh, the powers of the unconscious, the drives of the unconscious, the complexes that own us so often from our moral accountability. So, you know, I remember Albert Camus said once, um, you know, we, we cannot solve the problem of evil. We can't keep children from being abused in this world, but we can do everything possible to keep fewer children from being abused. And I thought that was a very realistic set of accountability that arises out of our responsibility in the face of the evil. 
But we have to start by seeing that capacity within us. None of us is free of the human project. And we carry the capacity within us for evil. And if we think not, then we're simply delusional. And it's spilling into us uh, and into our lives and onto others in a very unconscious way. Mm -hmm. And in this chapter, you include the questions that you ask participants to journal about in your workshop on the shadow. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And you and I did an episode about your book, which I said, I think on the last episode we did together, I think is the greatest book ever written. You probably don't like me saying that. But it is. It is titled, Why Good People Do Bad Things, Understanding Our Darker Selves. I know you're not happy with that title. And mm-hmm. and uh, and so we sort of refer to it as darker selves. Mm-hmm. That is a very important chapter. So chapter eight, uh, I highly encourage people to pay close attention to. And then the next chapter, chapter nine, is about the passage from Puer to Wise Old Man. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Hollis, I have a question for you. Do the people in the orange jumpsuits individuate? And if so, how? Well, the question that begins that chapter has to do with, again, one of those questions that floated among the students in training in Zurich. The orange suits represented the, fir- the folks working on the streets, you know, cleaning up the streets or day labor the streets. And it was designed to to make people aware that such things as learning and intelligence and all of those outer world accomplishments may in fact get in the way of our individuation process. And, you know, the presumptive answer to that question is they might individuate far better than you ever will. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, this this is the chapter that explores the question of maturation, particularly as embodied in the life and work of WBH, the poet, because he started out as a very dreamy aesthete, a, a youth who avoided, wanted to avoid conflict at all sorts of all sorts, and and yet life pulled him into heartbreak, pulled him into political conflict, pulled him into managing a, a, a theater business and so forth. And you know, he had a difficult life, but out of that rough and tumble life emerged a far more resilient soul and a far far greater sense of his depth of humanity. So the, the early youth that's saying basically in poems like, that say, come away, O human child, for the world's more full of weeping than you shall ever understand. In other words, flee the world to the, the more mature person at the end who writes, um, now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. You know, he comes right back to the core of what it means to be a human being. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a portrait of maturation. And, um, you know, it's out there so we can see it. But then we all have to ask, in, in what way do I see those infantile parts of myself showing up and making demands on me or upon others? And where am I called to uh, grow up and be more accountable? The next chapter, chapter 10, is about the necessity of personal myth. And in it, you include seven questions. The first place to start probing what is going on in the unconscious begins here, you say. Uh, You ask, what are your patterns? Where are you stuck? What are my avoidances? What are my overcompensations? 
What are mm-hmm. my symptoms? Uh, what are your dreams telling you? And living in bon foi. Mm-hmm. So these are all to encourage us to explore our own personal myth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what do we mean by that? We have tons of roles in life, parent, employee, partner, etc. cetera, uh, legitimate roles. But you have to say, but what are the driving formative influences in my life? And many times what we're living, of course, is reactive. You know, we're spending a life that's based on avoiding something, living a fugitive life. But again, that's not in service to life. That's in service to anxiety management. However, understanding that, understandable that may be. It's, it's a violation of some something in our souls and a violation of what, whatever reason we were brought here. So the, the personal myth is, what is it that you're really meant to serve? In the first half of life, your service is to the world, whether you like it or not. What do your parents want from you? What does the employer want from you? What does the school want from you? What does your partner want from you? And you have to begin an ego, create an ego strong enough to deal with those demands upon you but then again, the second half of life. So why am I here? And that begins a different uh, vector of questioning. You know, it's the relationship of the ego to the soul. What is meaning in my life? What is purposeful? How am I to spend my energies? What are the places that are the dead ends that I need to cut away in my life? Um, and again, always what is wanting to enter the world truly is a different question. So through all of my life, I think the one thing that has been consistent uh, in, in my life, it's really been my, my, my guiding myth, if you will, has been learning um, and teaching because I just was so grateful to teachers who addressed, began to address the questions I had as a child and, and how books helped and people helped and travel helped and so forth. And I, and I felt and continue to feel a deep calling that if you find these things helpful to you, why would you not want to share that with right. others? So that's that's what I see my, my life is about and my role. And nothing gives me greater pleasure than, uh, or sense of purpose, I think, than, than being the vehicle of those experiences. What, what have you learned on the road that you can share with people, you see? But we all have different different summonses in life. And sometimes it's through the field of our relationships. And sometimes it's through the work of hands. And sometimes it's work through, you know, creative uh, uh, enterprise and, and so forth. In other words, if I'm not asking a question like this and then looking at all the interferences uh, toward that, then I'm probably living on automatic pilot. I'm probably living in a very reflexive and programmed You mentioned something here, and I want to read it because it's so important. You say, neurological studies have indicated that we, priding ourselves on our exalted levels of awareness, actually are driven 95% of the time by the unconscious. Mm -hmm. And that is so important to keep in mind. And that is why depth psychology, the psychology that deals with the unconscious is... Uh, to me, the only way to go. So the last chapter in the book, chapter 11, is titled, For Every Tatter in Our Mortal Dress, Staying Alive at the Front of the Mortal Parade. And mm-hmm. you mentioned the, the first time you heard that song, Staying Alive by the Bee Gees, which is such a great song. And 
it reminded me of this scene in one of the Matrix movies, you know, the Matrix trilogy. I think it was in the Matrix Reloaded when the three of them are in an elevator, Trinity, Neo, and Morpheus. And Trinity says, maybe we did something wrong. And Neo said, or didn't do something. And then Morpheus says, no, what happened happened and couldn't have happened any other way. And Neo says, how do you know? And Morpheus says, because we are still alive. Mm -hmm. The first part of that title, For Every Tatter in Its Mortal Dress, again, is a line that comes from Yeats, who wrote it when he was ailing of body, in which he said, soul sing, clap hands, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. So it's like the more the decline of the body, the, the greater the necessity of internal enlargement to compensate for the outer decline. And so that, that's a summons as, as nature plays its way out, as happens to us, to all of us, if we live long enough, um, there, there has to be a growth within. And so I had no interest in writing about old age. <laughs> when people asked me to write a book about old age, I said, I really don't have any interest in old right, age. Right. Too, too busy living this journey and and one thing i would say about old age is everything hurts and many people you dearly love are no longer here yeah and you miss them and if none of if neither of those things apply then you're probably gone and you're the one that they're missing you know yeah. on the other hand i succumbed to a succumbed to a re request to uh, write this essay and it was just talking about attitudes toward aging in our culture which are very neurotic. In other words, you can define neurosis as wherever we're allied against life itself. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. wherever we are, you know, in some way resistant to the natural process, then you'd say we're on the wrong side of that ledger, I can tell you. And our whole culture is by and large. Uh, and, and, and secondly, um, wh what are the attitudes and practices that keep me growing and developing? And I can say to you that Caring for others and curiosity are the things that, that move me and drive me. And um, I would say, while I have a great number of physical issues at the moment, this is possibly the finest time of my life. Yeah. You know, I, I'm filled with love for people and uh, filled with compassion for human suffering. Mm. And I'm curious. And uh, I wouldn't, I'd love to trade in certain body parts, but... Right. I wouldn't want to go back and be young again. I think I've paid too much to get here. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking really about a kind of acceptance of all of this. And Yates wrote a lot about this, as other people did, as they reflected on and on age. And so um, the, the, the last essay is really about not so much aging, but serving life in which age is truly a secondary issue. So as I've said, I'm dealing with um, cancers. I've said to myself, you know, I have these cancers, but the cancers don't have me. You know, there's a big difference. And, um, you know, while the prognosis is good, you know, sooner or later, they'll probably take me out, if not something else. But in the meantime, here I am. Now, what are you going to do with this life? And with this life, um, you're, you're here to grow, develop, and serve what one's expression through you. You end this chapter, the last chapter of the book, with four questions that enlarge, and we will leave those to the reader. They're about fear, parents, spirituality, and growing up. And in the afterword of the book, 
you say you've devoted your adult life to teaching and that you have served your personal myth. And we thank you for that. So in wrapping up here today, I would like to mention a course on this book, Prisms, that you'll be presenting through the Young Society of Washington. It's online via Zoom four Tuesdays in a row, starting February 16th through March 9th. It's titled Prisms, Reflections on this Journey We Call Life, a course with James Hollis. And there will be a link to the registration form in the show notes for this episode. There is a member's discount and a discount for seniors and students as well. Or you could just go to young.org to register. It's just always a privilege to talk with you, Laura. And, um, you are one of the finest interviewers because you, you take the material so seriously and you do your homework. And uh, it's, uh, it's a conversation that I find enjoyable and I hope our listeners do as well. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hollis. Thank you for saying that. And you have been in my life, one of my greatest teachers. And I want to thank you for that. And until we meet again. Please visit the website, speakingofyoung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now on Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. So with special thanks to Dr. Stephen Buser, Jennifer Fitzgerald, and everyone at Chiron Publications, and to Diane Braden, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Young.